Let's pray. Oh Lord, in the opening of your word, we wait for you. We wait for you to attend to your word by your spirit with power. Lord, even in the speaking of your word this morning, I wait on you. We pray that your spirit would speak to us in places of our hearts and lives where we need to hear you. Pray that you would speak your word to our church and through this church speak your word so that others may hear of you and believe in you. Do this work, Holy Spirit, as you come, we pray you would come and do this among us now. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the little tidbits I learned uh, in studying the ancient Hebrew language in seminary is that the Hebrew language in the Old Testament has two words to convey blood, the sense of blood. So on the one hand, there's a way they use the word blood to relate to blood outside the body. And then alternatively, they have another word to convey blood inside the body. The difference, it seems, is to show that blood in the body has life in it. And while blood shed or blood spilled conveys the sense that there is no life left. Now that, I think, makes sense to us today because we understand how the heart works. It pumps oxygenated blood to the whole body system. And if that blood stops, the body ceases to function. So not only is blood critical for life, but so too is the function of the heart. No pulse, no life. No beating heart, no bodily activity. Now this connection between our biological hearts and our physical activities is a fitting picture of spiritual realities too. As the heart is to the body, so God is to the church. And we'll be thinking about that this morning as we look into God's word in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, which you'll find printed on page 991 of the Bibles provided. Or if you're new to the Bible and you have a copy of the Bible with you, just flip nearer to the back and you'll find the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians uh, called 1 Timothy. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 and the first seven verses of that chapter, which I'm going to read now. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles 
in faith and truth. If you wanted to, you could go and read this whole letter in just a few minutes in one sitting later today if you're curious. And what you would find is that this letter is about church life. It's full of instructions for what the church does and how it organizes itself. And this passage has instructions for the church. On the kind of bookends of the passage in verse 1 and 2 and verse 7, you see the church engaging in in activity. So you have praying, you have living, you have proclaiming. But in the middle, in verses 3 through 6... You actually see the motivation and the cause, the the reason behind these activities. So that's how we're going to approach this text this morning. We're going to come at it from the inside out. Now, as we make that move from the middle of the text, verse 3 to 6, to the edges, verse 1 and 2 and 7, what we're going to see is the heart of God giving life to the church. This is the main idea of this text, that the life of the church comes from the heart of God. And we're going to see that unfold as we look at that idea. The life of the church comes from the heart of God. We're going to look at it in its two parts. So the first part, or my first point this morning for taking notes, is the heart of God. The heart of God. Read again with me verse 3 to 6. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. The one true God, the Savior of people, wants all people to be saved. He desires every kind of person to come to know and believe the truth about who he is and what he's done. Consider the compassion of God in this. When God looks on the state of things on this planet... And he sees all these different kinds of people, Asian and European and African and and Latino, rich, poor, young, old, man, woman, boy, girl. His heart is to move, to unite them under his saving love. When he looks on the way all of us have distorted his truth and have disobeyed his word, he longs to deliver us. From our sin nature. When he sees our ignorance. He longs for us to be brought out of that. And live in the light of his good word. And we see no clearer expression of the compassionate heart of God. Than the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's compassion is what made the gospel possible. The good news we've already been singing about this morning. If the one true God was not willing to save us, then there would be no salvation. God's word here presents the truth that Christ is the only way by which men and women can be saved. The gospel is good news to us. And it's good news because God acted and Jesus came. 
sent from God the Father. From heaven, Jesus stepped to earth and became a man. He took on our humanity, his divine nature fused and intertwined with our nature. He was a man, and as man, he stepped to become mediator, to stand between us and God. On God's behalf, he came to represent justice and holiness, a sovereign God whose subjects have turned in rebellion and and through whom the law must be satisfied. Jesus came to mediate for a holy God. But he also came to mediate for sinners on our behalf, to become sin for us and stand in our place when God's wrath fell against our sin on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, became man and mediator and willingly offered that his life would be the ransom price to buy our life from death. By his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus became our substitute. And by his resurrection, Christ demonstrates that his blood does truly pay the price. His mediation was successful. It accomplished the peace that he came to bring between God and man. Friends, in this beautiful description of the heart of God in the gospel here in the middle of this text, you see how it is that mercy and grace flows to us through Jesus Christ from the very heart of God. And this salvation God desires to give. You can have it. You can have it today. Maybe you're here and you've been thinking that God would have nothing to do with you after the life you've lived, after the decisions you've made. But look here. Hear this. See how different God is from that. He desires that all people know him. So all you must do this morning is to acknowledge that you stand as one among many, many sinners. In need of this grace and salvation that Jesus brings. Acknowledge it before God who extends to you grace. He will take your sin. Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. Turn from it. And trust in this Jesus. Man, mediator, ransom price. Who died for you. Trust that he in his act took your sin. And in his resurrection conquered your death. God extends grace to you this morning. If you will take it from him, from his offer, and from his hand. Christian, hearing the gospel again this morning, doesn't it, doesn't it move your heart to think about how God, from the depth of himself, crafted and created a way for your redemption? For your freedom from sin that enslaved us. What depths of love there are in God. This gospel that God brings helps us to understand the significance of God's transformation when he gives us new hearts through Jesus. It's through Jesus and the spirit that God changes our hearts To take not the old way, the old human shape, but to take a new and and godly shape with these kinds of qualities. Do you find reflections of God's heart in your own? 
Do you find that you desire that people would know God, that people you love would be saved by this merciful God? Well, that's evidence that your heart and your desires have been united to God's desires. Praise God for that. Take comfort in that and seeing how your your heart is moved with compassion for the loss that's evidence that god is real and he's in you and he's working in you i'm so encouraged to see these reflections of god's heart in in this church in you in the many ways i've seen it from the few short months that i've gotten to be with you how so many of you want god to be known among your family members How so many of you desire to see transformation happen in the city as the gospel goes out as light in a dark world. How you give your time and your thought to thinking about how others you love might be saved. I praise God for his work in you, church. Verse 3 through 6 are just rich, concise theology. A saving God. Christ, the gospel, it's all here. But what does it relate to? Why has Paul put it here in the middle of practical church instruction letter, 1 Timothy? Well, throughout this passage, Paul uses the word all, A-L-L, five times. There are broad, all-encompassing truths about God here, but they have application, sweeping applications to different areas of life. And Paul says the effect of the heart of God in the gospel produces life in the church. So in other words, verse 3 through 6 explain where the life of the church that we see in verse 1 and 2 and 7 come from. It is this heart of God in the gospel that's behind the church as we watch the church praying living in peace, and preaching the gospel. So that's the second part of the message that I want us to think about. The second part of this passage. We've seen the heart of God, and now we see it moving into the life of the church. What does a church living from the heart of God look like? Well, we see three things. This is under point number two, the life of the church. Three characteristics of a church living from the heart of God. First, A church that lives from the heart of God prays for all people to be saved. Prays for all people to be saved. Look at verse 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When we pray... In this way, our practice of prayer reveals God's heart. Paul encourages us to pray all kinds of prayers. So he says supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings. I think these four different words for prayer cover a, a range of ways we can talk to God about others. We can make specific requests or we can pray in general. For people, We can consider those in great difficulty or distress and plead their cause before the Lord. We can think about people with a heart of gratitude before God. And there's no restriction here on who we pray for, is there? 
all kinds of people, all different ethnicities, demographics, income levels, political persuasions, backgrounds, religions. And Paul makes sure we understand he also includes our authorities in that list. Kings and all who are in high positions. We'll think more on that particular piece in just a second. Prayer, it seems, connects the lost, the lost to the God who saves. Prayer connects the lost to the God who saves. Paul links these prayers for these people to the God who wants all people to be saved. These prayers we offer for all people have a central aim to express our desire that God would show grace and mercy and salvation to those who don't know know him no matter who they are. To bring the eternal plight of ruined sinners to God's attention. That's prayer. To plead with him as if he didn't know already that he must rescue or our friends and our enemies perish. Who do you know that needs mercy from God? Pray for them. Church, let's continue to talk together about the people we long to see God save in this city, in our family, across the world. And then let's pray together for those people. Your family members who have for years said they don't want to talk about God. Let's pray for them. The countries that live under the dark clouds of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, materialism, and all the people in them. Let's pray for them. I'd encourage you to make this one of the reasons why you come and join us in midweek gatherings to pray. So that not only can we be a church that obeys scripture's instructions, but so that our hearts can be collectively moved and kind of morphed together and shaped together in one as we come before God together as one voice and ask him, God, act and save. Prayer connects the lost to the God who saves, but prayer also conforms our hearts to God's heart. It's hard to hate someone you're asking God to save, isn't it? Or to give the cold shoulder to someone you're begging God that he would soften them. I'm usually convicted about my lack of love for people in that I don't pray for them. When we start... Praying for the spiritual good of people, we start loving them as God loves them. Who are you having a hard time loving right now? When we think about people who cause us hurt or suffering, either to us or to others, we find those people difficult to pray for. But prayer is exactly what we need to do. To battle bitterness with prayers for their blessing. To shoo away envy by entreating God for those who have what we don't have. To earnestly act God to act to open the eyes of our enemies. In the exercise of prayer, our hearts soften to the eternal needs of others. 
The Holy Spirit through prayer gives new perspective to see past the here and now and to peer into the immortal realities of our endless existence, no matter who we are. And with the heart of God, the Spirit moves in us to love those who are facing the potential terror of life outside of God, no matter who they are. Having lived outside the U.S., I realized that I, I, I lived in Dubai for three years uh, later in life. But I realized in that time away that I had grown up here in this country thinking that, that we have everything as a country. And no other country has anything to offer us. And then when I lived overseas, I realized, one, that isn't true. But also realized that, that that way of thinking caused me to think in lots of different ways that, that I deserved better because I was born in what I thought was a better place. It had just kind of seeped into my own mindset. Believe me when I say that kind of thinking is poison to your prayer life. When we somehow start looking at people as less deserving of us. People who feel more deserving of God's favor only pray for themselves. But people who know they don't deserve the gift of grace, they are the ones who knock often at God's door on behalf of others who need the same grace. Prayer is the language of faith and hope. I was in Atlanta Airport recently, which is an extremely busy airport, one of the busiest. And when I'm in a busy airport, I am often overwhelmed by how there are so many people in the world that I will never know. I may live 80 to 90 years on this earth and will only interact with a micro percentage of the people alive. That thought really humbles me. What is going to happen to all these people? And how little I can do. But in encouraging us to pray, Paul is giving us these tools of faith. We, we obviously, in, in noticing how big this world is, how wide and how little interaction we have with all the people living in it, we obviously can't trust in our ability to save every, everyone because we hardly know any of everyone. But we can trust that the one true God who made everyone knows them each by name. So we pray with the language of faith. God, hear. God, see. God, save. And because God is who he is, we can also pray with the language of hope. He desires that all people will know him. He has acted to bring people to himself in the most remarkable way through sending his son to die for us. So we can carry expectation into our conversations with the living God. That he has said his heavenly city will be populated with all kinds of people. The church's eternity is going to be a celebration of how God brings unity through diversity by his saving power. The heart of God gives life to the church. And with that heart, God's people pray for all people to be saved. 
What other ways do we see evidence here that the church is living from the heart of God? Well, the second characteristic we see is in a church that lives at peace with all people. Verse 2. Praying for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Did you notice Paul's progression of thought between verse 1 and 2? Pray for all people so that you can be peaceful with all people. When the heart of God beats in the life of the church, we should expect that life that comes out of it, our life together, is going to be distinct from the rest of the world that doesn't know God. And that's what Paul says. He says, we have an aim to live quiet and peacefully, godly and dignified in every way. But then how many of us look around at so much of the church today, so-called, and we struggle to see this particular distinction? Warner Road Baptist Church, we should be grieved by the lack of distinctiveness Christianity and Christians have in our culture. And we should long that we would be different. There are traps and snares set all around you and me and us as a church to try to catch us in a life of noise and fighting and striving so that your testimony for Christ's better way gets smothered in the status quo. I think there are two areas, especially where the storms of culture beat hard against the church that's seeking to build their life on Jesus and follow him in his peaceful ways. I think one big area is that our culture encourages hostility against authority. And so Paul, it's interesting, spells out for us, just in case we missed it. Make sure in those prayers you're praying. For kings and all who are in high positions. For our authority. If you don't agree with who's in charge in our culture, then you are given a free pass to fight with who's in charge. I remember uh, another conversation from my time in Dubai with a 16-year-old girl who, uh, though she was an American citizen, had, had basically grown up in Dubai. A third culture kid, as they call her, call them. And in that culture, she lived under a benevolent dictator, the sheikh. And she told me one time how jarring and appalling it was to her, 16-year-old, when she traveled back to the United States and hear Americans disrespectfully referring to their president only by his last name without giving the respect to the office by calling him president. I thought that was interesting. You realize, maybe you don't realize, but the context in which Paul is writing is the Roman Empire, right? It's in its full glory. And do you know who's emperor at this time? Nero. Nero, who fed Christians to lions in the arena. Nero, who used Christians as human torches for his garden parties. And Paul tells the church, pray for Nero. And why? 
Because such prayers may move God to dethrone Nero, which God did. But such prayers will also produce in these Christians a desire to live lives that testify to a deep trust in God's authority under any human authority. It's good to pray that unjust governments cease and courts uphold righteous laws and oppression gets routed by what is good. God's character, it's just. And we know he's working to establish righteousness and justice through his coming kingdom. It's good when people can thrive under just governments, enjoying the freedom to worship God privately and publicly and to share the good news of Jesus without restraint. But it's also good to acknowledge that it is God who sets up governments. And God says, we are only to disobey our authorities when they tell us to disobey God. The history of the church shows that God often uses our suffering under injustice to highlight the supernatural peace his salvation brings. So the way of Jesus encourages submission to authority, not hostility. Jesus brought peace by submitting to a death sentence, though he had done no wrong. May there be such a distinctiveness to our peaceful way of life, Warner Road Baptist Church. That as a church, if and when we are pushed or reviled by our authorities, we offer loving prayer in return. There's a second area, not just in hostility against authority, where we see culture pushing against those who would follow Jesus in peace, but we also see culture encouraging strife with each other. Our culture encourages strife with each other. Now, I don't use social media much. I haven't been on Twitter uh, for probably a decade. Facebook, I'm rarely on. But recently, I signed into Twitter out of curiosity, and I got to tell you, the experience was just visceral. I just want to share it with you because as one who's kind of been detached, I don't think I was on it for more than five to ten minutes. But by the time I was done scrolling, I had to, I had to sign out. I had to close it down. I felt like I had been shoved into a packed room where everybody was shouting, shouting at each other. There was no conversation. It was mostly conflict. At the end of the experiment, I felt anxious. I felt agitated. I felt tense, stressed, on edge. And I, don't, I couldn't really even tell you why. And I've discovered I, I have the same reaction to watching major news networks. This is the cultural norm of communication today. Disagreement means disqualification from relationship. Conflict leads to cancel. You offend me, you and I, we're over. Paul portrays such a different culture within the church, doesn't he? A distinct culture. Outside, 
People are shouting to make sure their own voice is heard. Politicians are clamoring for power. Within the church, people are offering quiet prayers to God, asking that he would cause those engaged in the strife, engaged in the strife to come to terms to peace with God. What a picture of Christ we will show to the world when we have that kind of distinctiveness here. When people step in here and realize these people are not agitated, restless, scared, fearful about what they see going outside. But these people are still. They seem to know God. And this knowledge and relationship with him gives them peace. What happens to create such a peaceful demeanor within the people of God? Well, I think we'll live at peace with others when we're at peace in our life with God ourselves. Because the heart of God is at perfect peace. He's unmoved by any shouts or wars. The Trinity is fixed and stayed in this eternal state of relationship of love to each other. And Ephesians chapter 2 says that Jesus came to bring that to us. To give us that peace. By bringing us into union with With God and fellowship with him. So when we're at peace with God, we don't need to be at war with others. Because Christ put an end to it. He finished the war. What do we have left to fight over? (laughs) Is there strife in your life right now? Do you regularly mutter under your breath about the state of things? Is your marriage in gridlock? Could you call the way you relate to your authorities quiet and peaceful? Are you avoiding someone because of something they did to you? Maybe even here in this room. We need to come back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Where he was broken for our sins. Bruised for our iniquities. To the place where the punishment was laid on him and we were given peace. We need to come back to that place to settle our conflicts. This is the gift we've received from Jesus Christ. Can we not turn and offer it to our neighbor? We must. We must. The heart of God and the life of the church leads us to pray for all people, to a life of peace with all people. And finally, the church living with the heart of God is a church that preaches the gospel to all people. Look at verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. When Paul says, for this I was appointed, he seems to be referring back to the testimony given at the proper time. In other words, the gospel. But in light of the the larger passage here, he also seems to be operating from the same heart that motivated the church in her praying. They pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved. And he preaches to all people for the same reason. Paul, although a Jew, didn't restrict his message to the synagogues alone. God had a different purpose for him, appointed him to carry the gospel farther than that, to the Gentiles too. 
So he went all over preaching the gospel, establishing churches on the gospel, and teaching Christians to believe and proclaim the gospel. And as Paul writes this letter to Timothy, his concern is that this gospel continues on through Timothy's ministry. Earlier in chapter 1, he tells Timothy to guard the gospel message that Paul received and is giving now to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he'll tell Timothy to make sure that Timothy is giving the gospel to others in the church who can then take it and share it with even more. You see, the heart of God for the spiritually dead is that people will hear the words that bring life. We see that longing expressed in the tears of Jesus Christ as he wept at Lazarus' tomb. And we hope in the power of the gospel that as Jesus spoke that day, Lazarus walked out of the grave. A church that prays for all people, that lives with the heart of God for all people, will understand that God's means of calling all people is by us telling the gospel to all people. Do you want to share the gospel more? You think about your life and you think about the people you've talked about Jesus with and you think, I I would love this week to be different. Well, start. Start by praying more specifically for people you regularly see and praying that they would know Jesus. Start there. When you start praying that others you know and see on a regular basis, people around you, that they would hear of Jesus, I find, I think you'll find too, that, that the Spirit of God responds to such a prayer with these kind of gentle nudges. This, this thought starts to occur to you that maybe God has put me regularly in this person's life in a position that I might actually become the answer to my own prayers. Here I am praying that this person would hear, that I see all the time, oh God, bring a Christian. Bring the message of hope to this person. And you realize, oh, I've got that message. And here I am. So start praying and see what the Spirit might start nudging your heart to do. What a comfort we find in the heart of God for our fearful hearts in the process of trying to tell people the gospel. If you're scared of rejection because you are speaking of Jesus, lean instead on what God thinks. He says it's good and pleasing to him. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. How good and how pleasing it is in the sight of God when your mouth, weak and timid though it may be and you may be, speaks gospel truth to the lost. Church, we have a message for every person alive. Every soul living under one God who is the Savior needs to hear of one man, a mediator, a ransom who gave his life so that anyone who repents and believes can have peace with God. It is the heart of God in the life of this church that intends to move this body to pray and to preach To all kinds of people, from our family members to our friends, our colleagues, and even strangers. 
God gives the heart. He gives the words. And by his power, when the gospel goes out, God also gives the salvation. This is a big reason why we give money to this church. It's to support people who are set aside by the church to help the church in preaching the gospel. It's to set up and platform ministries that proclaim the gospel. It's to support people who you might never meet, who are in countries you might never go to, who are there working to set up and establish churches that proclaim the gospel in Turkey or India or set up pastors in Africa being trained to go and plant churches. When we give generously to gospel ministry, we are motivated by God's heart to give so that others might hear. So keep giving. And church, let's keep praying for all people. Let's certainly do that. But let's also consider, are there people God is telling us to start preaching to? Maybe you have someone on your heart that you really want to share the gospel with. Well, bring that person up at lunchtime today. Or in your conversations with another brother or sister this week. Tell them that this is what you want to do. That you... You want to convey the message of hope to them. You've been, you've been reluctant or fearful to, or you've done it before and you've been shot down, but you know that you ought to do it again. Bring that up with another brother or sister and pray together for that person by name and for you by name to go to them with God's word, moved by God's heart for their salvation. Well, I'm, I'm going to close. I believe even though I've been here just a short time, I believe there is overwhelming evidence at Warnell Road Baptist Church that God's heart is giving us our life here. I praise God for that. We are praying for all people. We are endeavoring to live at peace with God and each other. We are preaching the gospel. We want it to be preached to all people. My prayer is that through the work of the Spirit and His Word, This morning, our praying and peaceful living and our preaching would just continue to deepen and expand. I would love to conclude by taking us back to verse 3. Where Paul says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is what God thinks when he sees his heart displayed in the life of his church. When God hears our prayers, he says, this is good. That's the same language he said when he made a new and perfect world in the beginning. That's the world he's coming to make new again. And he loves when we ask for as many people as possible to be included in that wonderful future. When our mouths open to tell the gospel of Jesus, God says, this is pleasing in my sight. The same thing that he speaks over his son Jesus at his baptism and his transfiguration. The same thing symbolically declared when Jesus' death was complete and the stone was rolled away from the grave. God loves when our mouths testify to how delighted God is to bring people into his family through Jesus Christ. God's ultimate plan and his desire, his heart, is to bring a brand new creation 
through the life of his son. Where those he saves are those he lives with in pleasure and delight. Now that world is yet to be, and we wait for it with eagerness. But the life has already begun here in his church. As the heart of God leads us in being a praying, peace-loving, and gospel-preaching church. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray you would make us into what you would have us to be. As we hear this description of your heart, we, we who are yours, we, we feel a reverberation echo in ourselves. Of, yes, this is how we know you, God. This is truth as you've come to reveal it to us. This is the grace that you've given us that we didn't deserve it. And we long with your heart for it to be known and for others to, to know the same. And God, we've seen here in your word that you have a way that you want your heart expressed in and through us. For us to be praying for all people, to be living at peace with all people, to be preaching the gospel to all people. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enable this. That it would be the picture seen in our church. That it would be the words that come out of our mouth. That it would be the way in which we talk to you about others. We pray it because we desire to follow you in goodness and life and truth. We pray it also because we want Jesus' name glorified. And we know that when people come to know him and live through his name, your glory is most clearly demonstrated. And that's what we want. And so we pray for it. In Jesus' name, amen.